the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings to you. Thanks for coming along today for the Election Day edition of The Ride Home. Kath, it's an absolutely perfect day it is. in November. There's no excuse to not get out and vote because it's like 60 degrees. Right, it's right now it's a 65 degrees and sunny. Is that crazy? 65 and sunny on November the 7th. I love it. This beginning of winter, we'll take it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will take it. I'm planning on going for a walk after I'm done with work today. You're going to walk through the election? Uh, no. I mean, although I could. Yeah. I, it, it is within walking distance mm-hmm. of my house. Yeah. Maybe I will. Okay. All Glad right. you brought that up, John. I That's, think I will. I'm uh, going to do that. Excellent. Good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, by the time you get there, though, you, do you ever walk? <clears throat> I do this. Walk with a flashlight? I walk the streets with a flashlight sometimes. I guess I'm going to have to if I'm going to walk to the well, polling place, right? Your neighborhood's like I mine. I hadn't thought of that. You don't have sidewalks. What? I hate that. Me too. What were they thinking? I They're don't saving know. money. I so, really hate that. Me too. It's like you take your life into your hands. I, I just know. want to go for a walk, right? So I do. I do. I do carry a flashlight with me. I should me. get a little high visibility vest. <laughs> well, I I, I kind of laugh about it, but I understand it just for safety's yeah, sake. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, no, I can't do it tonight. Now I can't walk to the Okay, place. never mind. Forget about it. That was a good suggestion. Good grief. Oh, All right. Coming up on today's program in the 5 o'clock edition, mm-hmm. the Reverend Terry Tim back on the program. We're going to talk today about accepting God's invitation. Uh, also, um, we're going to be talking about dietary guidelines that are changing with advice from the federal government. So, you know, all of the things that we learned as kids about the uh, food pyramid, that's altered, and now they're thinking of, like, rejecting it altogether. Right. Because it's not as much, they said, the vitamins and minerals and protein composition that you're eating. It's whether you're eating real food or you're eating processed food. Right. I mean, just the phrase itself, advice from the federal government, <laughs> no, would give you some pause. And I'm not saying, I you know, know, I'm a federal government hater, but right. you know, would give you a little pause. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Okay. Anyway, that's coming up in the 5 o'clock program. And also, <clears throat> uh, in this hour, AI and watermarking. If you're seeing an image online that looks real to you, Probably within the next five years, you're going to start doubting whether that image is real right or away, not. Right away. You know, I mean, right away. I mean, I feel like now I have more confidence. Do you? But I bet over the next five years, that confidence mm, is going to wear yeah, away. So, yeah. um, What are we looking at? Yeah. And so, what are we reading? And so watermarking. Could that be a way for us to determine what's real and what's All not? Right, Dr. Derek Sherman will join us. Okay, good. And... Um, well, it's a news day, is it not? Right, there's Every a day lot is a going news day, John. on. So, you know, Kath, I, I think without you know any more interruptions here, let's go to the news source. Give us the top four at four. For Tuesday, November seventh, twenty twenty-three, number one. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu floated a plan for Israel to be responsible for Gaza's overall security for an indefinite period after the war in an interview with ABC News. Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas, which has ruled Gaza since 07, but had not offered a vision of who would administer the enclave after the war. Israeli forces advanced deeper into the territory, closing in on Gaza City, a move that U.S. officials said would probably lead to increased casualties. In a phone call with Netanyahu, President Biden discussed tactical pauses, I'm putting that in air quotes, that would allow civilians to flee areas of fighting and ensure safe access for aid, according to the White House. Overnight strikes were reported in Gaza neighborhoods. That's from today's Washington Post. Y'all right over there? Sorry. Dropping some things. Number two. The company WeWork filed for bankruptcy, capping the flexible office spaces venture's remarkable collapse after once being our nation's most valuable startup. WeWork, valued at $47 billion at its peak, is facing the consequences of excessive expansion, according to the Wall Street Journal, that has left it with many unprofitable locations. The office space provider signed hundreds of long-term leases at the top of the market in the late 2010s, but of course that business crumbled when demand for the desks fell and vacancies rose during the pandemic. I mean, everything changed yep. during COVID. WeWork remained on the hook for billions in rent payments to landlords, and its losses totaled around $16 billion as of June. Number three, older adults who don't smoke tobacco but do use marijuana are at higher risk of both heart attack and stroke when hospitalized, while people who do use marijuana daily were 34% more likely to develop heart failure, according to two new non-popular studies presented at the American Heart Association scientific sessions in Philadelphia. Now, this goes against a lot of things we've heard, which basically, sure. according to the media or the politicians, is that if you're smoking weed, it's all natural, it's Sorry. good for you, it's, it can basically fix whatever ails you. Good to go, yeah. However... The AHA recommendations today advise people to refrain from smoking or vaping any substance, including cannabis, because of the potential harm to your heart, lungs, and blood vessels. These are the words of Dr. Robert Page, who's a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacology at the University of Colorado. This is what he says, John. The latest research about cannabis use indicates that smoking and inhaling cannabis increases concentrations of carbon monoxide, tar, and it's similar to the effects of inhaling a tobacco cigarette. Both of which have been linked to heart muscle disease, chest pain, heart rhythm disturbances, heart attacks, and other serious conditions. Marijuana use, though, John, on the rise among older adults. A 2020 study found the number of American seniors over 65 who now smoke it has increased twofold since 2015. You mean it's not a miracle? Nearly three of every 10 marijuana users develop a dependence on weed called cannabis use disorder. Mm. Or we could just call it addiction, we right? Could. We could. That's according to CBS News. Number four, as you said, Election Day has arrived again. Voters in Western PA and across the country are heading out to the polls to decide races from Westmoreland County commissioners to the Allegheny County executive and district attorney. Numerous high-profile races on the ballots. You can go to the trib.com to look at the year's biggest races, and also there is a voter's guide for you to look at or download. And that's your top four at four. Very nice. All right. It's a lot going on there, is it not? I'm. I downloaded my voter's guide. Oh, good from the trip. Uh huh. Excellent. It's not like it. it it's not a voter's <clears throat> guide that like w- tells you who to vote for. It no. just outlines 
who the people who are candidates, what they think, right, where you can smart. vote, that sort of thing. Excellent. Very good. Voting open tonight until 8 o'clock. Very good. All right. We'll take a quick break. We do come back. We're going to talk about gaming. If you know a child, love a child, my guess is that child, now more than ever, is involved in gaming, computers, and whatnot from your home forward. We'll talk about gaming alone, a Christian approach for gaming with Christian boys. Sarah Ekoff Zylstra is back with us, senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. She's also co-author of the book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Sarah, we're glad you're back. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure, Sarah. Uh, you wrote a piece, Gaming Alone, A Christian Approach for Gaming with Christian Boys. Uh, in many ways, um, it is um, a damning indictment of, of gaming. Um, I, I knew all these things because I have two sons. We grew up gaming. But uh, read it, uh, to see it in black and white, it just crushes me. Mm, you know what? I think... I think it takes us off guard because gaming has changed so much in the last 15 to 20 years. Even when I started talking about this with my husband, and he was like, what's the big deal? I did some gaming in high school, and what he's thinking is I was in the living room with a couple friends, and we had some snacks, and there was a console and a TV, and we played for a little bit, and then we went outside and threw a ball around. I think um, the more I dug into it, the more you can see how much it's changed over the last decade or so. Boy, sure okay, has. so for those of us who aren't gamers, talk what's the change? What what was it and what is it now? Yeah. So there's three three main ones. Um, the first two are pretty obvious. One is the content, right? The content is a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more beautiful. The graphics and the sound effects, of course, are more lifelike than those first games that we were playing a long time ago. Um, it's also available now, right? You don't have to be in the living room with your friends. You can, as long as you have a phone, you're connected to something and you can play anytime, anywhere, all the time in school at your grandma's when you're supposed to be in bed, you can just play it all the time. Yep. But I think the third change is the most, uh, the one that we don't see and the one that's made the biggest difference. And that is the economic change. So um, before, video game companies made money when you bought a game and, they, and you bought a console and then you played those games. Uh, now, 90% of video game sales are digital, which makes sense. You don't go to the store anymore and pull it off the shelf. You buy it digitally. And 85% of the revenue of that comes from free-to-play games. So free games are pulling in 85% of that digital revenue. Wait, wait talk about that. What, is that. what does that mean, yeah. Sarah? Yeah, so like Fortnite is free, right? You just download it and you can play it for free. How are they doing that? Well, there's these things that are called microtransactions or in-app purchases where you buy like a weapon or some extra lives or if you're playing Fortnite, a skin or something, right? Just to make the game more enjoyable. And that is what is pulling in most of the money. So what I'm, I'm not saying that all gamers buy stuff. In fact, only a minority of, of gamers buy stuff, but they're spending so much money, it's changing the experience for everyone. Because now the goal of a video game designer is to keep people on as long as humanly possible so that those who are going to spend money have more time to spend it. Right. Okay, and, no, no. 
again, I, I'm talking as an outsider here, but I think there are probably a lot of listeners who are also outsiders. So to help us fully understand it, if you're 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 playing for free. But you can buy certain things to allow you to play for longer or to enhance your experience. Right. Do Are ads also a part of gaming? I think ads are also a part of it. But I I think the where that 85% is coming from is those microtransactions. Okay. Right. Okay. Smaller, right. Yeah. It's those little purchases. Yeah. And so for the last 10 or 15 years, video game companies have hired psychologists. They keep them on staff. They study the human brain. They see what we respond to. And they have, boy, once I started looking into this, it is just, I could go on and on. So you could write a book on all the things that would attract a human brain to a game. Put, uh, making people play levels, right? Like once you achieve a level, you feel happy and satisfied with that. Tracking someone's streak. Hey, you played every day for 15 days. Now you get a reward. Um, I listened to one gentleman who was explaining to a room full of game designers. He said, you know what we noticed? People playing Fortnite after they would um, finish an adventure, their activity level would drop off, right? They would go get a snack or they would go to the bathroom or they would go play with some other friends. He's like, what we did then to combat that is when someone's having an adventure or achieving a task or whatever it is they're trying to do, We'll start them on a second one partway through so that when they finish one, they're partway through the second one. And so they can just switch their attention immediately over to that one. And then partway through that, we start them on another adventure or task. And then partway through that one. And he said that worked. And they saw the drop-off, that activity drop-off disappear. And then people just continued to play eternally. So it is purposeful. Yeah. So, Sarah, if you're a kid or an adult... Quite honestly, you really don't stand a chance because the psychology is in place. All the mental faculties are in place. I mean, this is an industry intent on creating a generation, a world of addicts. And I don't think that that's hyperbole. I think you are right, and I think we can look at it a couple different ways. One, uh, God intends us to play, right? There is good and healthy play. So I think the desire underneath the games to set down some stress, to connect with other people, those are all good urges. I just think where we run we run into trouble a couple of ways. We run into trouble when the content, like the game we're playing, is wrong, right? If you're watching, uh, if you're in a strip club in your and watching porn inside your virtual uh, video game that's wrong. I would also argue that gratuitous and unnecessary, really gruesome violence is just wrong. You shouldn't be doing those things. Um, and then I think it's the way that you play can sometimes be just wrong if you're lying or cheating or treating other people, bullying them or something that's wrong too. And then I think we can also, and, and this is so hard, they're trying to make us do it, but it turns into an idol for us. It turns into an obsession. It turns into a thing that we can't submit to God. We can't turn off. Um, and then uh, you start, it starts taking over your life. So in 2019, the World Health Organization identified a gaming disorder as a health condition and said, they identified it in part as when you are suffering negative consequences. So you're losing your job, you're alienating your friends, you're doing terrible in your homework, um, and yet you continue to play even though it's negatively affecting your life. And it just, the picture in my head there is like, I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings, Gollum with his ring, protecting this ring that is killing you, right? And you're still protecting it. And that just seems like... Um, the def- very defi- definition of an idol. Right. 
And Sarah, of course, um, girls and women, Mm -hmm. uh, they also play video games. But there is something about a boy or a a man's mind that is wired differently. I mean, it's the truth. It is wired differently. Mm -hmm. And so you see men fall, even before the the advent of the the rush of video games, boys in many ways are generally behind uh, girls as far as education, Mm -hmm. skill sets, language, any number of things. And this... This can't be helping. This makes it uh, tenfold worse. Yes? Tenfold worse. I would absolutely say so. So studies show that when men, when boys conquer something in a video game, when they win, they feel really, really good. Girls feel good, too, but they don't feel as good as boys do. And then studies also show that when boys lose in video games, meh. Like, they sort of feel that wasn't so great, but girls feel it more intensely. Like, so girls feel those losses more acutely. So for a boy, there's really almost no incentive to stop because nothing ever feels bad in there. And it all feels so good. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Well, that's like, that's like. That's a, that's dangerous. I, I can't. It's horrible. Yeah. This grieves me to the to the nth degree because, in many ways, if you look at us, we are creating people who, again, not hyperbole, we are creating a generation of psychopaths. I truly do believe that. I mean, do you the, really? I do. The lack of empathy, the lack of self control, mm-hmm. the lack of compassion, mm-hmm. the addictive qualities. We are, as a nation and as a world, headed into a hellhole. I truly believe that. Well, we are heading into isolation. So studies show that back in 1999, 3% of American men said they had no close friends. 3%. Today, that is 15%. And if you divide that by age, men who are under 30, so Gen Z, under 30, young men, that's 30%. So the more they're playing the games, the more... And I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. They're playing sort of with people that's what i was thinking sort of with friends but that it's not translating you can't go to you know out for pizza with that guy or have him over or call him when your car breaks that's not the kind of your friendship is so limited it's just on that screen just when you're having those adventures together and so when they come out of that then they're reporting they have no close friends right so the thing that's right in front of us and the accessibility of it is part of the addiction, right? Because you don't have to it's go. Easy. You don't have on. to go out and get it. Yep. It's always yeah. there. Yeah, it's always there. Okay, so, so what you can do? Let's talk about the happy. Yes, part thank you. Okay, so so as believers, <laughs> as Christians, is there a way out? So here's what I. So I think a couple things. First, I'm going to lay out this out. I think you should observe your son. Um, I think you should should watch him. So what my husband and I pulled our son, we had a 12-year-old who was really into video games. And so we tried to really limit him. And we limited the snot out of him, you guys. He was down to like 45 minutes on a Saturday morning. And it didn't help. He would still, he was easily frustrated. He was no joy to be with because when he wasn't playing, he was constantly thinking and talking about it. When we said it's time to get off, he would complain and argue. And if we weren't in the room, he would completely disobey every time he wasn't turning it off 
Um, and so we said, we don't know what else to do. And so we pulled the plug on it and it was the best decision for our family. He, I, we have noticed changes in him spiritually. He's much more kind and joyful. We've noticed changes in him socially. Um, we've noticed because he's more competent. Now he's outside. He's He can build something out of wood, and he knows how to play games, and he runs, and he reads. He's just a more interesting person. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying every family has to do that. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is ask yourself the question, do I see the fruits of the Spirit growing in my child when he plays, or do I see... Uh, anti-fruits of the spirit, weeds of the spirit, I don't know what to call them, Um, that frustration, that anger, that um, hostility, is that what's growing in him? You're going to have to observe and watch and see what you can see. And then if you do think, boy, we could try and limit this, even if we just take a break for a little bit, you don't have to commit to pulling the whole thing. But if you're like, what would happen if we took a break? Let's experiment on ourselves. And I think what you have to do is say, I'm going to buy him a bike and I'm going to take him to a baseball game and we're going to go to the water park and I'm going to get him some ingredients and teach him how to make cookies. And we're going to um, think of it as if, if you want your child back, you're going to have to pay a ransom for it. And it's going to cost some time and some money if you want to, to help him to step out into real life again. Amen. Wow. Thanks, Sarah. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. dire, but uh, I do believe that there is a way out. But, man, mm-hmm. uh, it, it looms badly for a generation or many of these uh, kids who are before us. There yeah. is hope, though. There is there is always, where there is Jesus, there is always hope. Um, and I think if you just keep fighting it, when I talk to boys in college, there are boys who say, boy, my mom put limits on me and I fought her like crazy, but I'm so grateful now. And there are boys who say, I wish my mom would have put more limits on me, but I don't talk to any boys who are older who say my parents were too lenient. So um, just take that under advisement. The more accountability you can give him, the more of a gift you are giving him. Wow, that's good. That's Sarah Ekov zilstra senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Check out her book, Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. She's also the author of something that we could all use, which is social sanity in an insta world. Sarah, thank you. Thank you Sarah, thank you. Thanks for having me. are amazing. Here's a great story that's local. A bakery in a cafe that is opening today in Squirrel Hill has a menu that rivals most coffee houses, espressos, cappuccinos, lattes, sweets, including cookies, muffins, and pastries. But the mission of Bunny Bakes and Specialty Coffees isn't about serving up food and beverages. The 20-seat spot at 1926 Murray Avenue in Squirrel Hill is staffed by workers with special needs and diverse abilities. I'm reading from next Pittsburgh. It's also designed to accommodate patrons of all abilities with accessible seating and tables and an adult changing table in one of its two restrooms. Wow. Mm-hmm. Bunny Bakes operated by Friendship Circle. Remember that? Friendship Circle? It's right across from Giant Eagle. Yes, it's what used to be the uh, Eaton Park. It used to be, or be no. Galifties. Galifties, yeah. Right. Uh, Friendship Circle is a nonprofit that since 2006 has been forging connections among youth and adults of different athletic abil- of different abilities, faiths, and education levels. So um, there's this little new that place. That is such a terrific idea. How about I it? love that. Yep. Uh, they can develop skills, all the people who work there, resume build, and potentially get employment elsewhere. We hope to connect local businesses with amazing employees and give the uh, community a role model. Isn't that fabulous? 
I love that. I mean, you need more places like yes, this, yep. especially right in the heart of Squirrel Hill. How powerful that would be, right? Stop on by to Bunny Bakes, opening today. I also want to highlight a an article that was in Next Pittsburgh um, over the last uh, several days. It's popped up on my feed a couple different ways. Seven Pittsburgh holiday house tours, John, to mm. put you in the spirit. Um, I was a yearly uh, attender of the house tour in Observatory Hill Oh, uh, when I lived there. Yeah. I didn't miss it. Things got a little more complicated when I had children. Sure. <laughs> right. But this year's slate of holiday house tours is going to give us plenty of opportunities. If you if this is something that you like, I love to get inside and just see how... The other half lives. Ex- or how people decide to utilize their space mm-hmm. or what kind of color they're using or whatever. Anyway, um, so there are several that are listed here. One is in Glenshaw. It's the Century Club holiday house tour and craft fair that's saturday november 11th so that's coming up this weekend also the symphony splendor christmas house tour is the one in shady side you know where this is on fifth avenue exactly exactly so that comes up that starts friday the next friday which is the 17th and goes uh, throughout that weekend the saturday and sunday the 18th and 19th um you can't miss the house it's the one that gets that gets wrapped up with the big bow on it mm-hmm. um i've never been inside there so I would really like to do that one. Also, the Ben Avon Holiday House Tour is beautiful. You've been there? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love it. That's coming up Saturday, December 2nd. Um, ben Avon is a beautiful part of Pittsburgh. If you've never been there, you definitely should give it a try. Um, Oakmont, their Christmas house tour, is Sunday, December 3rd from noon to 4. Also, the old Allegheny Victorian Christmas house tour down in the north side. I have done that as well. That's in Allegheny West. I love that. Plus, the day that uh, the tour opens, local churches are open as well. Really? Neighborhood, so you could do a church tour, too. Okay. The Tiffany Church. Which, that would be great. So mm-hmm. that's Friday, December 8th, and Saturday, December 9th. Very also, nice. Crescent Hills Holiday House Tour coming up on December 10th. Christmas in Crafton is December 10th as well. I like it. I, I just want to walk around in someone else's house, and you kind of get your Pittsburgh Nebby going. I, <laughs> don't you do? Yes. You do. You, you do. Oh, I wanna... Okay. Should we go to one? I'd love to. Choose any of them. I'd be happy to go to them. Now, they're, they're not inexpensive. No. Like the, the one in Shadyside? Yeah. 50 Smackers. The old Allegheny one, which is Allegheny West, is 35. Okay. Uh, Oakmont, 25. Okay. Ben Avon, 30. Or right. 35, depending on if you're going at night or during the day. All right. You come to my house and give me five bucks, I'll show you around. <laughs> <laughs> just, just saying, that's all. Have you been inside the big house, the Red Bow house? I have. I knew somebody who lived there. That used to be um, um, a CMU boarding house. Really? Mm-hmm. Back in the day. Way back. Like in the 70s. So was I knew- it just all like... Oh, Carved up and partition. terrible. Yeah, yeah. I knew guys who lived there. You'd go in there and be like, it was a mix. It was kind of like a, I'm not, I, I don't even say that. No, um, there was like a, a house mother, someone who oversaw it. Okay. And fairly inexpensive, I mean, a, as it goes, being just blocks away from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I, I thought I always wanted to live there. I thought it was super cool. But there were a lot of people in that house because it's a gigantic house. But everybody had their own little space. Wow. Yeah. Now, it was probably, what, 10 years ago that somebody bought it and converted it back mm-hmm. into one house? Right, exactly. Yeah. Now it's, you know, it's a, it's Millionaire's Row. That, it's known historically as the Negley Gwinner Harder House, mm-hmm. named for three of its past owners. Mm-hmm. What year do you think it was built? 
Uh, I know the answer. 1880. 1870. That's really good. Not bad. Okay. I would have thought it was later than that, but it was uh, built by William Negley. Mm-hmm. He of Negley Avenue. What, mm-hmm. what did Mr. Negley do? Do you know? No. Mr. Negley. I mean, it must have had a huge impact. Well, clearly. And he has some deep pockets as well. Right. I mean, Negley Avenue. How about walking up Negley Avenue? Oh. When's the last time you did that? Well, I don't think I ever have, ever. actually. I don't think oh, I've ever. all the time. No, from Fifth Avenue? Yeah, I used to live in Bloomfield and walk into Shadyside. Boom, yeah. up Negley. Yeah. Sometimes you see people riding a bike up there. Mm-hmm. All right, okay, that's enough. Take a, take a little house tour, right? Tis the season. I really want to do it this year. Okay, I'll, okay. I'll have it come along. Let's come up with a plan. There was a time in the not-too-distant past, and I'm saying six months, <laughs> eight months, a year, where if you said AI to a room full of people, maybe 50 and over, you would have gotten a lot of blank stares, right? Mm-hmm. AI. Even now, a lot of people don't even know what AI is about. It's a mystery. There's a weirdness to it. But the fact of the matter is, AI is here. It is upon us. And like Paul Revere yelling out, the British are coming, it comes with a certain amount of fraught, mm-hmm. danger, fear, I would say. Derek mm-hmm. Sherman's back with us. Derek's a regular guest on our show. Uh, he's got a piece talking about uh, AI and watermarking. Derek Sherman is the author of A Christian Field Guide, to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Derek, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. So, Derek, if we think about um, AI in particular when it comes to uh, image generation. I think that's mm-hmm. the part of it that really makes me nervous. I know it makes people who are involved in you know, law enforcement or, um, or uh, the legal profession nervous as well because you have a photograph of something and you think it's proving a certain point, it's showing something in particular, and then you realize that AI can be generating images and showing people who aren't, weren't even really there. Exactly. So seeing used to be believing uh, in terms of photography and and video. And because of AI's sort of remarkable capability, especially with some of the more recent generative AI in producing, you know, all kinds of images or media or videos, um, it's not certain when you see something that that it's it's in fact real. And so this this creates a bit of a a bit of a crisis in terms of you know being able to reliably um, you know understand what you're seeing is actual reality. And so th- th- this is the challenge with some of these new technologies. And it's not just images; it's videos, it's audio. We we could have a fake you know ride home with John and Kathy show, uh, so to speak, right? You know, with fake audio and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Okay, so it came up in the news this, I think, past week. Uh, some high school boys, as they are wont to do, they created these deep fakes of pornography, which you know just crushed the girls in their high school class. Because they weren't real photos of the girls. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Right, they had, ju- they had just yeah. utilized photographs of the girls' faces, attached them to bodies, and then you know it became, it became a, a huge issue in that high school. Yeah, there, there's some real dark things that can be done with this, too, of course, you know, and ruining people's reputations and causing, 
you know, all kinds of um, um, consternation for people if their likeness or images being used in ways that are that are really unkind or un, untrue. And so, so yeah, it sort of opens up a whole a whole mess of things. And, and you can imagine if a politician is reproduced, you know, using AI, saying something provocative or something that uh, that that might be interpreted by people or other nations in a certain way, it could cause all kinds of unrest and and other issues as right. well. Okay, so then, Derek, in your work, a Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers, I mean, this is moving so fast. So something that was relevant, you mm-hmm. know, a year or two ago, maybe not, maybe less relevant, but is there a way to stop this flow of false, whether it's audio, video, or still images? Is there anything out there that could be, you know, corralling this? Yeah, so th- this is where watermarking comes in. And and this is just one technology um, that people are exploring for ways of authenticating images. And in fact, a recent executive order from the White House has actually been pointing towards, um, you know, requiring people to begin using this for, for, for government photos or, or suggesting mm-hmm. that, that watermarking be explored. It's, it's one of the new tools that people are looking at. But it's really not that new. Watermarking is actually uh, probably being used in your wallet right now. Most currency, uh, I believe $5 bills or higher, um, has little watermarks built into the actual currency, the banknotes. So if you hold them up you know, to the light, you'll see little embedded images you know, um, actually inside the paper. They're, they're really, really, really hard to reproduce uh, for forgeries. And so it's one way of trying to ensure that that currency is is legit. And so they're trying to come up with a digital equivalent of that, putting something inside the bits and bytes that make up an image or a video that can somehow be used to authenticate that it is, in fact, coming from where it's purported to be coming from. Okay, so that seems like a great idea. I mean, is there a downside Mm -hmm. to that that I'm not thinking of? Well, it isn't bulletproof. So, so the, the, this is probably an ongoing area of research. I mean, the problem is, is if uh, it can be sometimes tampered with and tinkered with. Mm-hmm. And so, what we really need, if we're going to rely on that, is something that's really, really, you know, robust and and not fragile or subject to. Um, uh, manipulation by other people because the, the last thing you want is an image that appears to be authenticated but in fact was tampered with and so so I think this is the right direction we just have to make sure that we build tamper proof watermarking technologies for these 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 different types of media and that all the big tech companies and governments sort of get together and decide how are we going to do this and how do we build it robustly and so that's that's the big question I think we're talking with Dr. Derek Sherman he's professor of computer science at Calvin University author of a Christian field guide to technology for engineers and designers Derek um, seriously before we met you Kath and I would occasionally think about this but our relationship with you has sort of notched things up a little bit and, and maybe in some ways made us more anxious. I mean, when you see what's you, coming. You really wrecked things, Derek. Well, Thanks so much. Sorry, sorry about that. We're on antidepressants, <laughs> Derek. And it's all because of you. There you go. I mean, we have every reason to be anxious about what's coming because, I mean, it's just sort of like you're out of, Pand- it's out of Pandora's box. Yeah. No one knows what to expect. It's hard for mm-hmm. to be a future-leaning person to think this is all going to be good and be self-contained, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think part of it is becoming aware of these sorts of things. You know, it's 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 part of basic media literacy to kind of understand how things can be manipulated and used, so that we can make sure that we don't we don't fall for things. And and I think too, you know, as 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 Christians, we we have a high value on truth. I think we we see that you know any attempt to kind of put something out there that's sort of false would be a kind of bearing false witness of sorts, you know, and uh, and we would have a lot of interest in finding ways to make sure that civil discourse and images used in media and politics and so on are are truthful and uh, and transparent. And so I think uh, I think as Christians we need to be aware of some of the. Well, the fallenness that comes with the use of media technologies and then think about ways that, that we can, you know, use some of the tools like watermarking or, or, or what's being worked on now. There's something called a um, content provenance and authentication sort of group that's come together to look for more robust ways of doing this. But, but you know, looking towards these sorts of things to try and to try and make things a little bit more reliable and uh, and transparent when we when we work and and exchange information in the digital world. What about um, the processes that? Uh, you know, law enforcement, like you mentioned, or different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, attorneys have to go through when submitting something for evidence. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that's been in place for a long, long time. Uh, and yeah. so can those, uh, is is this the kind of thing that's going to have to be voted on by legislators? Or how is this type of, how would this type of thing in in the digital world be implemented? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Yeah, because we're course, not just talking know. about the U.S., right? This no, exactly. It's it's a worldwide. We, you know, the web is not doesn't stop at the borders of the U.S. Um, so you know, it's a it's a worldwide sort of conversation that we need to have. And I think you know some of the bigger news sources, you know, folks like the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, and others have begun to you know engage in conversation with some of these some of these efforts to look for really robust ways of making sure that media can be tracked and not only sort of where it originates from, but what happens to that media along the way, right? If people are editing it or adjusting it, um, that there's a manifest that sort of travels alongside a piece of media so that you can, you can reliably open it and understand exactly where it's been and where it's come from and what its origin is, especially when you're looking at news items. Mm-hmm. Is there a way, Derek, to, to stay ahead of the curve? I mean, like you said when we brought you in, things are moving so quickly. I mean, I was just yeah. thinking the other day about how many how many jobs, how many professions will be wrecked because of the rise of AI. I mean, you know, it, it feels as though massive unemployment is on our way because the robot will do it better. Yeah, and what we need to think about is, you know, what what do machines do well, and what do people do well, mm-hmm. and and then you know machines are machines and people are people and how do we how do we use these tools alongside people um in such a way that they can actually be be more productive and 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 create you know actually some wonderful stuff with these tools but that they're used appropriately and responsibly of course as well i i believe that Christians can be effective in this, you know, digital age. And I believe that, God, you know, God's placed us here uh, for in this time for a particular reason. But man, Derek, sometimes it just does seem overwhelming. It just seems like the complexities are bigger than I can, like, manage in my head. 
Yeah, and, and it does seem, I mean, even for someone in the field, that some of these these sort of changes and these advancements are coming in waves that seem to be coming faster and faster. And so, so one of the challenges is, is that sometimes our rate of innovation is faster than our rate of, you know, ethics sort of development. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so part of it is also, you know, being able to not only innovate, but to think about how do we responsibly unfold these sorts of things. And so I'm, I'm glad that large companies like Google and others are, are talking about this issue and, uh, and, and looking for ways to try and help us so that we can you know that so that we can we can rely on the the images and media that we consume because because yeah. otherwise truth begins to get watered down a little bit right you can't what well, what do you believe anymore and 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 populations can be manipulated and all these sorts of things that so there there's something that's quite um, um, important about solving this issue and, yeah. and, and finding tools to help us. Derek, just a minute or so left, but you brought this up, so I have to follow this. I mean, do these gigantic tech companies, do they employ theologians, philosophers, mm. ethicists? Mm. I mean, is that even a conversation with them? I, I, I don't know if they do. I, I, I'm sure they have ethicists that they talk to. But uh, I'm part but of an organization called. they don't listen to them. <laughs> yes, not all the time, maybe. But I, I'm part of an organization called AI in Faith, which is an organization of people who are trying to bring, well, Christian computer scientists, but also theologians and philosophers and others to the table, and try to have conversations within the larger public square about, you know, what does it mean to use these tools responsibly, and can the Christian faith, in particular, uh, help inform this conversation uh, in terms of how do we do these things ethically and how do we maintain transparency and avoid bearing false witness and all these other sorts of things that can be so easily done with some of these tools now. Interesting. Derek, always a pleasure. It's yeah, very really interesting to us. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. you helping us kind of think through these issues. I mean, we're a little freaked yeah. out, but, you know, we, we do appreciate <laughs> you being here. <laughs> well, at least this show is genuine, right? You can yeah. certify this is a genuine show. It is. This was... Yes. Well, thanks for inviting me again. Yeah. Thank you. The All watermark right, is here on the ride home. Derek Sherman, professor of computer science at Cowan University, author of A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Derek Sherman. You think cats are aloof? Well, cats have been known to be studied closely and making upwards of 300 different facial expressions. 300. Okay, now wait. You have two cats. Two cats and a dog. Names. uh, The names of your cats are? Ricky and Cassini. Lex, you have two cats? I do. Names? Possum and Bog. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I have two cats, Bert and Guster and Princess Mm -hmm. Charlotte. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, between us, that's a lot of facial expressions going on Apparently. in our house. Now, there's a woman, her name is uh, Brittany Florikowski. She says she's been a dog person, but uh, she is a researcher at Arkansas College, a psychology professor. And uh, she and another colleague uh, went to the Cat Cafe which is in their neighborhood. Yes. They set up a Panasonic recorder and they studied um some 200 I'm sorry, some 50 cats over more than 200 hours. And then over the next 5 months, they broke those videos down. And what they discovered was what we're talking about here is that cats have all these different expressions which we're here to really not looked at closely. 
Um, as you might expect, uh, everyone is different. Every cat is different. But of the 300 expressions, researchers found that about 46% of cats' expressions were friendly. Okay. Makes 37% sense. were aggressive. 17% were ambiguous. Cats opening their mouths, dropping their jaws, wrinkling their noses, and blinking were behaviors seen in both friendly and aggressive faces. Cat communication, she says, Brittany says, is much more complex than we have previously assumed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they hope that the cat owners and shelters will use the study's finding to understand how well their cats are getting along. Well, you know if your cats are getting along, right? Yeah, but sometimes my cats fight a lot. Do they? Yes, they fight a lot. Is one more dominant? Yes. One's the aggressor. Oh, Don't my you? gosh. The big yes. boy. Yes, yes. I hate that. Yes. And, uh, and... But sometimes Charlotte, who's usually the victim, starts it. So I think... We, you're asking for it. Well, yeah, you can't be too traumatized by this if you're starting the altercation. Well, we it's not like this. she's living under the sofa or something. We had this. The dog came in. Changed it. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along today for the 5 o'clock hour of The Ride Home. It is, as you might have heard, Election Day. Yeah. Yes, it is. Have you been out there? I have not. I'm planning on voting as soon as we are done here with the show. Me too. Um, That's my usual standard time. That's when you show up. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I showed up at another time, the people that work there would be a little thrown Mm -hmm. off by the whole thing. I like going to the polls, don't you? I always like going to the polls. Now, my husband has become completely enamored with uh, voting by mail. My wife has as well. Is that right? Yeah. Figures, right? Yeah. There's so much alike. Yes. Yeah. So he he said it gives him more time to consider things. He gets to look into it more deeply. He's, you know what I mean? So, mm, more invested in the mail. Yeah. I think it's a big fail, quite honestly. I, I, I want to stay away from it. Because you're not in with other people? No, because I just don't trust government to get it right. Oh, I just like to be at the place, at the polling place, like and just look at people yeah. in the eye and say, hey, how are you doing? Here right. we all are. It's like Halloween. Part of, part of, right. Part of our neighborhood. I'm glad right. you're on. They always have little snacks. They have snacks? Yeah. What? A little Halloween candy. What happens like, if you get something on your hand and you touch the machine? Well, there... I'm just I don't saying. think they suggest you eating the snack before you vote. It's oh. like maybe a little reward for voting. Like, it was like apple crumb cake. And yes, no, it's there, not like, that. On that. No. And it's like a you know, it's a thing of M and M's, or it's like oh, Kit Kat or something. That's nice. Don't okay. get carried away. We don't do that in my area. No, that's just, too get bad. in and get out. Let's go. Uh, polls opened at seven a.m. Mm-hmm. They're going to be open till eight p.m. Uh, if you are in line at eight p.m., you'll be allowed to vote. Okay. That's what they're saying. Would that be nice? Remember, yes. there are those rare instances where there are long lines of people polling, right? People at the voting polls. It's it's a rare thing. Mostly you just kind of waltz in, you walk in, and they're waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Uh, do you have strong feelings about uh, any of the races? Uh, I do, which I would prefer not to share. Okay. Good. Thank <laughs> I, you for saying that. We used to say to my mom and dad, who did you vote for? And they would say, the standard line was, 
none of your business. Right. Which I think is an appropriate response. Yeah, no, I think you're right. right? I feel very strongly about a couple as well. Do you, though? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I do. Do you want to share? Nope. Thank you so you much didn't. for asking. <laughs> no, I think it's fine. I think it's more than fine. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so officials and experts in Pennsylvania, according to the Trib, are confident that new tech and the growing familiarity mm. with how our, our, our mail really? ballots work and how the poll workers will be assembling them are going to make for smooth sailing. Really? Why would you yes. be confident at I'm, all? I'm it, reading to, uh, what it tech. says in the Trib. Lexi, we've just gone through new tech here at the station. How confident are you in the <laughs> unveiling of new tech on a most important day? It doesn't make a lick of sense. There you go, lady. <laughs> Words of wisdom from the producer's box. You're funny. It does not make a lick of You're sense. You're funny. I mean... <laughs> okay, I think the big races we're looking at, of course, are county executive. Yep. Right. Uh, and we're looking at probably, I would say, Dugan and Zapala for the yeah, Allegheny DA. County DA. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. I think those are the two. Those are the marquee events. Yeah. So? yeah. Mm-hmm. How about your local representatives? Right. Oftentimes I go in there like, I don't have a clue, which that's, is hard for me. to. I know. That's why I, I have part. to take time to do that before or I just hate myself. So that's where your husband comes in. Where he's like well, studying. Well, he's done it for weeks. Right, he's he's been studying. I should have asked him over the last week or so what he, but we didn't even talk about it. So. Right. Remember the voters' guides? We used to distribute voters' guides here at the station. Yeah. Well, you know what? There is a PA voters' guide available on the trip. But, election HQ, Western PA Voter Guide to the 2023 general election. You can just Google it now and look it up. Well, my, the problem is voters' guides have become political. Well, this one isn't very political. You think very political? Well, I, it doesn't lean left or right. I mean, someone's got to. It's have, basically telling you where the, what, where the candidates stand, where the candidates stand, and what are the issues at play. All right. So it's not there. There's I, there's I, no I have not seen any advocacy. Would you see that in the trip? In the trip, really? Okay. Yeah. So tomorrow morning we're going to be talking about the Inamorado Rocky race, and we're going to mm-hmm. be talking about the Sapala um, Dugan. Dugan race. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm guessing. All right. I look forward to voting. I feel I feel very strong. Okay, well, about how about the evening has changed as well? Because, you know, polls close at 8 o'clock. You'd sit down in front of the tube and watch the results come in. Now, because everyone's, the aforementioned spouses, are mailing in their votes, how does that mix go into the mix? Well, I don't know, especially because I'm not sure what the current reg- exactly. requirements right, are for right. Pennsylvania. It's murky. It used to be... I think in PA, they need to receive your ballot by today, mm-hmm. which means that they won't have them counted right. for several days. And all of a sudden, Dinesh shoes shows up. <laughs> right, like exactly. Stuffing yeah. ballot and, boxes. And his mules, and they're what? everywhere. <laughs> what's going on, everybody? <laughs> what's happening? Let's keep, let's keep it fair and clean. Anyway, the bottom line is, go on to the Trib, look at the Western PA Voter Guide, mm-hmm. and get out today and vote. Yeah, Do not take it for granted. Don't leave it to somebody else. No. Uh, you are a citizen. You're going to live by the things that these people decide. So get out yeah. and make your opinions. I mean, out. not to over-dramatize it, but people died for your right yes. to do this. So just right? do it. God bless America. Just do it. Right. Anyway, we need to uh, step away. But when we come back, looking forward to having the Reverend Terry Tim with us from Christ Community Church at the South Hills. Mm-hmm. Terry says that he wants to be talking about accepting God's invitation. And you'd think, who wouldn't want to accept God's invitation? That's right, like the right. easiest question in the whole world. But it's more complicated than that. Because, because God's sense. invitation is going to demand something of us. Right? Yeah. Well, you can't, if, if you're going to say yes, that's going to mean something. Am I worthy? Am I ready? Mm-hmm. Am I willing to 
say yes. Am I willing to surrender? Mm-hmm. Am I willing to not be in charge? Am I willing to let someone else have control? Let's ask Lexi. Control's an illusion. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't have no control, control. But I still feel like I have to be in control. Right. That's really stupid. Okay, we'll take a quick yeah, break, right? Terry next. Set us all up. Accepting God's invitation. It's the ride home. We are Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on 101.5 Word FM. That's W O R D. Terry Tim is with us. He is the pastor of Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Terry, over the many, many years, has been a regular guest on our show and always a significant and pleasurable encounter. Terry, welcome. How are you, friend? Hi, John. You put the pressure on me. I hope it's pleasurable and enjoyable <laughs> and significant. today. <laughs> it's significant. Well, I'm just right. working on, you know, just past precedent, Terry. That's all I'm saying, right? <laughs> Well, I uh, hopefully you two can draw something that's significant okay. out in this conversation. We, well, we won't hold your hold you captive to well, your past success. It's kind of like in sports. I mean, you're only as good as your last game. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> it's always good to be with you guys. Thank you, Terry. You're here today to talk to us about something very, very interesting. Which I think, you know, when I when I think about this myself, it has a little anxiety within me, and I'm not quite sure why that is. Really? And I think probably this is not uncommon for a lot of people. But Terry, you're here today to talk to us about accepting God's invitation. Yes, I I think one of the coolest parts of God's character is this invitational nature that our God has. I mean, of course, there are rules and there are commands throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament. But quite frankly, so much of the significant things that we find in in the Scriptures, God invites God's people into something. And, And God invites and creates a space and an opportunity for God's people to experience the good, the beautiful, and the true. It's not forced on God's people, but God says, come on, I'll show you a better way to live if you would just say yes. And that's really what I, I'm trying to train train my eyes and my ears and my heart to listen for God's invitation and then to be willing to say yes uh, as kind of like my first default setting. So and, uh, so practically, yeah. Terry, what does that look like? Are, are you talking about that like when you walk out of your house in the morning? Are you talking about that when you walk into worship on Sunday? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Yes to all of that. I mean, I'd encourage you to think about like, how do you feel when, when you receive a significant invitation from someone in your life? Like just, first of all, what does that do to your sense of self and being like, like two weekends ago, uh, 18 months, 18 months ago, I received an invitation to not only attend a wedding in Savannah, Georgia, but to officiate the mm. wedding in Georgia. Now, of course, who doesn't want to go to Savannah like at the end of October? It's like mm-hmm. a perfect time to go to Savannah, Georgia, this beautiful historic city. But but it was more than that. It came from a 30-year-old woman who I've known since she was one year old. Wow. Oh, super cool. 
Right. So I've known Jenna since she was a little baby and she and my daughter, same exact age. They went to preschool together, kindergarten together. Like I watched this woman, this young woman grow all through her life. And so when, when she said to me, Terry, that she moved a couple years ago to Savannah because of work, she said, you know, I'm getting married. I found this guy. Would you, I'm inviting you to do our ceremony. Would, would you do it? I'm like, Heck yeah, that is a, that is a yes, because there's goodness in it. There's goodness that we share life together. I get to celebrate this high moment of life with you. Um, and it just made me feel good. Like she, she thought enough of me and our relationship over the years that she would invite me into something. Do we actually believe that about God, that God cares that much about us, that God says, Hey, Terry, John, Kath. I've got some really awesome things for you to experience and just listen for my voice and it, it neatly tucked into this invitation is going to be this RSVP. The choice is yours. You could say, yes, I will accept. I will attend. I will participate or no, thanks God. I got something else on my agenda today that I'm going to pursue on my own. And I want to develop that, that, that heart attitude of saying yes to God. Hmm. That's really good. The heart attitude of saying yes to God. Now, Terry, uh, I mean, I love this because when you, that's an excellent story, because when you are invited to something significant, larger than yourself, you do feel special honored. Yes. Special, right? That holy smokes, I can't believe I'm going to be part of this. The invitation to God, I do believe for a lot of us is too overwhelming. It's it's understandable for me in a head manner, mm. but in my mm. heart, somehow I stumble forward with it and I fail to grasp it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. I mean, because we're not just talking about a friend or a family member or a coworker inviting us into something. We're talking about the God of the universe, right? This, this holy transcendent God. And of course, I'm not on the same level. You're not on the same level. None of us combined are on the same level of the transcendence of God. But, but I want to point point you to this one text in John chapter one. It's early in the Gospels. Uh, and John, John the Baptist has his own disciples. And in John chapter one, it says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, there's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And then it says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. Think about that for a moment. These two people, these two disciples, common people like the three of us, they were curious about Jesus. And Jesus simply said, come, come, you'll see who I am and what I'm about. And, and John Gospel says they spent the day with him. No other details, but I love to like imagine what would it be? What was it like for them when they said yes to Jesus's invitation to spend the day with him? The God of the universe says, come on, guys, let's spend some time together. And I think that same invitation keeps getting extended to God's people 
today. Spend some time with me. Get to know me. Watch me. Work with me. And and who knows what will emerge out of that spending that time and saying yes to God's invitation. Terry, Tim is with us, Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Terry, um, I think about that question, what do you want? And I think that is like pregnant with meaning. Uh, And if if Jesus, I was putting myself, as you were telling the story, in the disciples' position, Jesus turns around, looks over his shoulder and says, what do you want? I mean. That's cool. That's like, I can't even answer that. I have to, th- I have to sit down and think, about, I mean, I want to say, well, I want to follow you, but I don't think that that's the real answer. No. Anyway, it's just. There's... And you think, think, Kathy, how many times, you know, in the gospel does Jesus ask a question just like that? What do you want me to do yes, for you? Yes. What, what do you, you want, want me to do for you? Right. And I mean, it, it shows us that Jesus's heart posture is for us. Jesus is like, come on, I'm inviting you into this space, into this deeper relationship. Don't just give me your surface level, but like, let's, let's get at some depth here. And, and even that, you know, even Kathy said, what's maybe my quick reaction to Jesus saying, what do you want? But then are we willing to go with Jesus like deeper? That's, that's maybe the surface desire, but what really is underneath that? What deeper hunger, thirst, and longing do I have, do you have, do we have that Jesus actually wants to meet? He wants to quench and to satisfy those longings and desires. And so sometimes it's just we've got to do some work to even figure out what's going on in us. Right, right. I mean, he actually wants to because he can. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and again, he's inclined toward us. It, you know, I like I like to say sometimes I say to people in my pastoral work or coaching, I'm like, hey, John, Kath, I'm with you and I'm for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm with you and I'm for you. Jesus is with us and for us. That's game changing. Mm-hmm. Like he's present with us. And his every intention that Jesus has is for our good, for our well-being, for our thriving and flourishing. And Jesus says, come on, do you want to be a part of this deeper relationship with me? I'm inviting you into this space. And, and you know, sometimes like we think, I just I want to take my shoes off and say, I'm, I'm not worthy. This is holy ground. Yes, right. Always. <laughs> and Jesus says, come, come spend the day with me. So if, if God is extending that invitation to us and and God is with us and for us, then there has to be something deeper he's about than our circumstances, because oftentimes our circumstances are not thriving, are not flourishing, are not healthy, well, joyful, or happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what you're, what you're getting to there is God is, God is fully concerned about our character Mm -hmm. and our inner being. God never, God, God never authors, you know, terrible things happening to us or to the world. But even when those hard and terrible things happen, God's with us and for us. And Jesus is saying, there's a work that I want to do in you so that I can do work through you. Right. There's, you know, some people live, you know, 
outside in, but Jesus wants us to live inside out. And so even this invitation to, to, to be with Jesus and to know Jesus's presence, even in the hard, even when we're not thriving and flourishing is this opportunity to, to go inwardly and to experience the strength, the mercy, the compassion, the provision of God, even in the midst of that hard. Mm-hmm. And there's, because he's, because he is care. He's, he is concerned about our character and our, our inner man, our inner woman. We're talking with Terry Tim about accepting God's invitation. Terry, I, I love this conversation. Um, we need to step away for just a minute. But I, I wonder often about this. I, I want God in my life. And I know that you do and Kath and Lex and all the people who are listening right now. Otherwise, you would have tuned out. Right? That God is significant, that we have a thirst and a hunger for God. But I also believe that because we are so disparate from our backgrounds and our upbringings and our heart knowledge and head knowledge, that God comes to us in different avenues, different ways, different touch points. And what, and what works for you, how God comes to you, doesn't work necessarily how God comes to me. Mm. So could we talk about that? Maybe we take a break and, and continue on with that about God's invitation and what the invitation looks like for us individually. Would that be all right? It's a great, great line of questioning. And let's pursue that, John. We'll step away for just a minute. Terry Tim is with us. Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Stick around. Be right back. It's the Pittsburgh's Christian Talk, the ride home here on Word FM. with the Reverend Terry Tim from Christ Community Church of the South Hills. Uh, the segment that we just finished was on accepting God's invitation, but John, you're kind of thinking about how maybe each one of our invitations sounds different. Well, uh, not to be obtuse, but I, I, I just know it's true, right? That God comes to us individually. That's, I mean, isn't that the beauty and the majesty and the mystery of the God of the universe that he knows all of us, if we choose to, intimately, mm-hmm. one-on-one, which how you just can't, <laughs> I mean, seriously, how can you wrap your head around? Sense. It doesn't make it. You wrap your head around that. But on my heart of hearts, I know it. I feel it. I understand that it's happened to me daily, mm-hmm. the communication. But it's different for you than it is for me. I think it, so. Well, I don't know. Terry, don't you, what do you say? Absolutely. Uh, th- think about this, parent. We all have children, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, sometimes I've heard people say, hey, I parent all my children the same exact way. <laughs> no. no. And I would say to them, you're like the terrible parent. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> your children are all different and they need a different approach. They need a different, unique parenting style to their unique design, right? I mean, yes, we have some core values, core philosophies about parenting, but each child is created different. And so we we, we come to them, we communicate, we relate to them a little bit differently. It's the same with God. Yes, we all are image bearers. We're all children of God through Christ, but we we all have different hardwiring and different patterns and ways of experiencing God. So I think it was Gary Thomas uh, that actually coined this phrase, spiritual or uh, sacred pathways, sacred pathways. And, And he suggested that there are at least nine different ways that we relate to God and God relates to us. 
based on our temperament, our personality, and our hardwiring. Mm. For instance, some people sense God's presence most powerfully when they are out in nature. Right. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And so for some people, get them outside walking, you know, beside the lake out in the fall leaves or whatever. And they like they feel so close to God and God feels so close to them because they are they, they just love the outdoors. There's there's others who you know, there's an intellectual pathway. God's invitation comes to them as God speaks to them through their study of scripture or through their reading through a theological or philosophical or some book that challenges them. That's, that's where the invitation of God comes. Sometimes it's, it's people who are caregivers and they are just hardwired to provide service and care and love for others. And God meets them and speaks to them and invites them through their caring. So uh, yes, I think there's numerous pathways, numerous ways that God speaks quote unquote to us, uh, because God cares so much about us. He, he, he knows how we're, he knows our frame. He knows how we're hardwired and he wants to meet us where we are and invite us into where he wants us to be. Okay. Terry, with about two minutes left, then how do we open ourselves up to that? How can we, how can we be willing and how can we show that we're willing? Yeah, it's a great question, Kathy. I, I, I think one is, is developing a posture of receptivity. What I mean by that is, do we have an expectant spirit to us? Do, do Let me just say it this way. Do we actually believe that God wants to communicate with us? That's a fundamental. I, I, I think a lot of, a lot of us go through life thinking God's God's spoken, God's given his word, and, and it's all in the past tense. But but I believe God is active and alive and living. God is a God of revelation and God wants to meet us where we are. So I think the first step for me is having open hands and open hearts, you know, to to, to use the line that that Eli the the priest Eli gave to Samuel, like have a posture of like speak Lord, mm. your servant is listening. Yeah, yeah. That is critical. And then learning, learning to tune our ear and our heart to how God speaks God's invitation to us. Uh, You guys know I got this dog a few months ago and dogs have very, they have dog sized brains, right? They don't understand English language, but they, they learn. My dog, Marty has learned to recognize my voice. And not only my voice, but the nuances of my voice. He doesn't understand the words, but my intonation, my pacing, he has learned to respond. And I think that's the same thing with us. We need to learn to to, to tune in to how God speaks to us so that we can really begin to understand what the invitation is and then give that yes to what God is inviting us into. That's excellent. Terry, that's really good. To be wholly available, I guess, is another way to put it, at least the way I think about it. And I I remember this. Someone said a a long time ago, whenever I hear someone talking about God, I want to listen because God's always interesting to me. 
Hmm. And I, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I need to, you know, it just God's always interesting. So I, mm-hmm. I, I want to engage. Yes, that's so good. Terry, tell us about Christ Community Church. Yes, we uh, we actually we, we celebrated our 20th anniversary a couple couple months ago wow. in the beginning of the fall, which is was exciting, and uh, we we actually are in a series right now. We this whole fall we've been uh, exploring God's big story, and it's been so much fun to delve into not only you know kind of the grand narrative of scripture creation fall redemption and restoration but how does our story map on the god's story through through the grid of connection and, and and then right now we're thinking about like like what is god inviting us into not only individually but as a as a church as a corporate body and trying to discern that together is it's really exciting knowing that god has something specific for each of us and for all of us even as a church and so, uh, yeah, we, we, we meet at uh, 905 East McMurray Road out in McMurray. We, we do a building share with uh, some good people at St. David's Episcopal Church. We're partnering with them on some things. And it's a really exciting. I'm, I'm really excited about what God's doing in the life of our community of faith. That's excellent, Terry. I mean, uh, as unique as the church is and you as their pastor are, mm-hmm. so is your time here with us. And we are certainly, certainly grateful every time you stop by. So thank you, Terry. You're very welcome, John and Kathy. Always good to be with you. Thank you. That's Terry Tim, Christ Community Church of the South Hills. We'll be right back to the ride home. Does this make sense? It does what makes sense. Dark chocolate and sea salt. The How's, combination of them. How's that even a question? I'm asking the question. Does that make sense? You've got a kind of a savory thing. You've got a salty thing. And you've got a sweet thing. Does it make sense? It makes as much sense as the breath in my lungs. <laughs> that's how much sense it makes. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not even a question. Mm. Do you th- to some people, do you think it does not make sense? Yeah, of course. I know Come a on. lot of people what? Who, no who way. really did, like, think that that's like a, a really weird fad, food ha- fad that we're in the middle of. They're having a Nestle's Crunch instead? Well, yeah, or they're having like, I don't know, they're having a milk chocolate Milky Way or they're, that's you know, fine. or a, they're into Three Musketeers. That's all good. But dark chocolate sea salt is as pretty close to the pinnacle, I would say. That makes perfect sense. Tell me, does it make sense to you? Yes. Okay, good. I mean, I was having a conversation with somebody just a couple days ago, and they were just railing about it, saying, you know what, these food fads, you know, everybody gets into this, like this dark chocolate sea salt thing. That's the worst comment. And I thought to myself, we are from different lands. Dark chocolate and sea salt. Whoever thought of putting that together, I just feel like had like... They were on the same line as the great artists of human history. I think like, right. that's how great of a combo it is. It seems like it would come, like, from a fever dream. Right, but it, like, wasn't, it wasn't a thing 15 years ago, no, it was wasn't. it? No, it wasn't. Like, someone was delirious. Yes. And was like, oh. I had a dream about it. Oh, I need to see salt and dark chocolate. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, indeed. 
Okay, I, I don't know how to phrase this, but does this make sense? <laughs> this is going to be um, This is the first time we've had trouble with uh, the phrasing of wait. the question. Big box inventory look. Oh, you mean like the stacks of stuff that are above your head when you walk into no, Sam's No, no, no. Like, okay. Okay, I'll just be... <laughs> just be I, I'm looking for a rake, so I go to the aforementioned Home Depot or Lowe's. Right. Go to their... My, in my local store, oh, yes, we have rakes. It's in aisle 48, section pod 12. We have 18 rakes available for you. Great. That sounds like the best thing technology could offer. Love it. Look how convenient that is. Yeah, because now, ra- now I know. I'm going out there. Aisle 48? Nope. Not now 48. Pod 12? Doesn't exist. Rakes? Not in stock. <laughs> the $14 you rake, rake is not here, but the $30 rake is. Oh, wait a Doesn't minute. Doesn't make any sense. It's one of those things that you rarely think about. I think probably the last time I gave it any consideration was the, remember the brouhaha um, over Michelle Obama and the school reconfiguration of the food pyramid. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah, and the school lunch program as a result. Right. So, so the federal government chimes in on our, our, our nutrition more often than not, actually. Yeah, and how we should think about food. Right. So, you know, the food pyramid when we were kids, you know, it had the carbohydrates on the bottom, mm-hmm. right? It had your sweets on the top. Right. Um, and then when Barack Obama was in office, like you said, Michelle Obama had a, a you know a program that she was you know pushing across the US and at the bottom was no longer carbs at the bottom were I don't remember if protein was at the bottom or if fruits and vegetables were at the bottom but know. carbohydrates and sugar were together right. and they were and it was all bad but it made a big it was a big deal it was a big deal and i think for a lot of people you kind of go well i'm not even paying attention what is this whole thing about right well now it's changed again yeah not the food pyramid in in particular but just the guidelines that the government is giving us for how uh, and what we should be eating so and it's just a different way of looking at it. So they're saying you should be eating, we should be eating foods that are rich in vitamins, minerals, fibers, and proteins. The things that we should be eating less of are things that have a lot of sugar, a lot of uh, salt, a lot of saturated fat. Right. But eat your plants. Right. Basically, eat, eat your, is, this, is the healthiest way, right? So now scientific experts who are talking about these things are going to start warning all of us not about which of those things we should be eating, but instead to just steer away completely from too many ultra-processed foods. Mm-hmm. So it's for the very first time, the Guideline Committee is examining the science on obesity and how it links up with ultra-processed foods. So those ultra-processed foods are things that are industrial, industrially manufactured, that have unusual combinations of foods, that have a lot of additives and ingredients that are not found in nature. So they said, if you can make it at home in your kitchen, it's not ultra-processed. Right. So what we're talking about are things that you cannot make at home in your kitchen. Like tater tots. Like chicken nuggets. Mm -hmm. Dinosaur chicken nuggets. Yeah, exact particular. Or like chips or crackers or mac and cheese. Right. Or... Mini tacos. Your lean cuisine thing. Hungry man? Probably. Yeah. The uh, the soft tacos that somehow stay mysteriously soft, even though they're on the... 
grocery shelf. The microwave burrito. Exactly. Mm. All of that. All so, that's going yeah. away. Okay. So it's not going away, but the government now has an invested enticement to look at these things and to talk about the nutritional aspect of that to inform us to live, to live healthier lives. They said there is a... Uh, an unbelievably strong link between people who consume a lot of ultra processed foods and higher rates of weight gain, obesity, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and other chronic illnesses. Which I believe would be a lot of us. Right? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, as we become more immune or more in tune to ease. Right. I'll just pop this in the microwave for 60 seconds and you're good to go. Stir it up and put it back in for another 30 seconds and you're good to go. There's a meal. Right. That's been America the last 20, 30 years. Maybe. It has been. And it's, Look at us. It, it doesn't seem like it's helping us very much. Mm-mm. So uh, ultra processed foods have a significant impact on how healthy or not healthy we are. Even though they taste good. Even though they taste good and even though they are easy. Critics have long argued, I'm reading here from the Washington Post today, that current health guidelines focus on the wrong things. Mm. They focus on individual nutrients and they ignore the effects of processing and additives. Mm -hmm. The National School Lunch Program, which I talked about a couple minutes ago, allows schools to serve kids meals consisting of Domino's Pizza, Lunchables, Cheez-Its, and other ultra-processed foods that have been formulated to meet government standards for fat, protein, sodium, and whole grains. So they look like they're healthy, right? Because they're low fat or they're low sodium or whatever. But the problem is they are loaded with additives, right? So they fall beneath the radar in some way. While they're kind of tricking the, Mm -hmm. um, the eater, the consumer, to think that they're eating something nutritious when they're not. For example, they said the turkey in a box of Lunchables served in schools contains 14 different ingredients. The turkey contains 14 different ingredients, wow. including additives for texture, flavor, and shelf life. Sure, yeah. Right, right. So the dietary guidelines that we're talking about are updated every five years by the Department of Agriculture and Health and Human Services. The next edition won't be published until 2025, but an advisory committee is expected to issue its report next year. And the big question is um, whether eating ultra-processed food influences growth size, body composition, risk of overweight and obesity, and weight loss and maintenance. This is good. I think it's groundbreaking. I think it is. I think it's healthy, too. I, I think I think it's the right thing. I think I need to focus on it more, me for too. sure. I know that about me. Um, also, the Washington Post article said that the U.S., our country, lags behind other countries in addressing ultra-processed foods really? in its food policies. We do. Yeah. At least half a dozen other countries have issued dietary guidelines in recent years, explicitly urging people to cut back on ultra-processed foods. Mexico's dietary guidelines, for example, which were published back in May, warn people to avoid processed meats, processed sausages, chips, crackers, cookies, sweet bread, and boxed cereals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's everybody in America for yes. the most part, right? I mean, there are, there are some exceptions. I mean, I just had a French bread pizza for, for lunch. Now, this they, they, quote, uh, they quote Marion Nessel, an emeritus professor of nutrition at NYU, and she or he, I'm not sure, a Marion could go either way, right. um, that I wouldn't say don't eat them at all. 
it makes no sense. But ultra processed foods belong in a category of don't eat too much of them. Well, yeah, of course. So maybe not eating cereal every day for breakfast. See, cereal, I'm sur- I mean, I get it, but cereal has been touted as healthy for a long time. That's what they're saying. Right? Pinch an inch. That's what that they're saying. That goes back to the 60s. So our guidelines of what's healthy and what isn't healthy is what needs a revolution. And it's going to be mm. something that we're going to see in, in the future. Okay, so I wait. mean, like in the immediate future. So I see you eating your plain yogurt with blueberries right. in lieu of cereal. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what it's come to. But I, I really like granola on top. And I think granola, granola is it ultra processed. Well, I'm not making it in my kitchen. I mean, I could. You could make it in your kitchen, but People I'm make not. Your own granola. Well, no. I mean, it's not like a little house on the prairie. They're not requiring well, you to wear a bonnet and <laughs> no. make it in your kitchen. No, but I'm saying that the granola I'm eating is stuff I'm buying at the grocery store. It's in the cereal aisle from the granola factory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling that that's probably not a great. Maybe I should. I have. I can make my own granola. Oh, come on. But do I really want no, to? No, I don't think That's so. what I'm saying. I mean, a big step forward was you in the compost pile. Exactly, which I mean, so, has been a huge hit. Yeah. So I'm, now. I'm, I'm, I've completely bought into composting. Great. But do I need to buy into making my... How about chips? Don't... I mean, please, don't take the chips away. I love chips. Me, I live for a chip. My middle name would be Chip. <laughs> what about pretzels? That would also... I'm not making Same pretzels thing. in my kitchen. Right? I guess that would include Fritos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm just, I'm just saying. Pretty I sure. mean, if you were attacking chips, well, if Fritos is the cousin, it's coming right down the line. Here it is. Okay, but here's the other thing that, that the, these type of guidelines make you think. Yeah. That if you do cook them at home, whatever you cook at home is fine. Well, well no, not no, really. No, because I, you know, I made ginger... Uh, last night, it's you know 10.30, and I'm eating gingerbread with lemon icing that I made myself. Yeah, but you know... Well, it didn't have emulsifiers and stabilizers in it, but it is, you know, you know what? full Seriously, of sugar. Wait a second. Wait. In the past week, I have been to two funerals. Yeah. We are all going to die. Yes, you're right. So am I going to deny myself any chip, a Frito, <laughs> <laughs> barbecued and or otherwise, so I can live another day? I don't think so. Thank you. Thank you for the Frito call out, my friend. I'm just not. I'm just not going to do it. Okay. So when I, on my deathbed, you go, Johnny. You could live longer if you'd have pulled away from the Fritos, and I'll go. It was worth it, because <laughs> it, it was worth it. It was. Oh, gosh. Just, oh you're right. You can only try so no, hard. You know, seriously, been to two funerals. We're all going to die. Anyway, hey, on that happy note. Yeah. Okay, but let me say as we close. All right. We could live healthier lives we for could, however of long course they we could. are. Yes, of course. I mean, I don't want to be stuck. You know. You know, in some bad, you know, situation, the right. end of my life suffering because I didn't take care of myself. Right. Of course, you want you want and need to adequately take care of yourself. Exercise. Try to yes. eat right. Yeah. Right. Live a cleaner, healthier, longer right. life. But no matter what happens, you're not giving up the freedom. I'm not giving up the Fritos. Keep Give me the chips. Look, I'm here trying literally in my mind to come up with time that I can make my own granola. And, and they're going to pull the Fritos out of your cold, dead hands. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.